Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores. It's Pula again. Canada wins gold in overtime. Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. Okay, so... Close your eyes and think of a hockey player. Go ahead. You can do it right now if no one's watching. I'm going to close my eyes too. All right. So you're thinking of a hockey player. Now, what do they look like? Are they tall? Big? Burly? Missing a few front teeth? That sounds like a hockey player to me. But are they white? Chances are, if your main perception of a hockey player is a white man or a white woman, it's because this is what you've grown up seeing. Hell, even those stick figures I had on my tabletop hockey game growing up as a kid were all white faces. And while the face of hockey is slowly starting to change today, with more and more youth of color enrolling in leagues, this diversity isn't necessarily reflected at all at the pro level. Amongst all the major pro sports in North America, Hockey is definitely the most overwhelmingly white. Of the over 1,000 players in the NHL, only around 30 or so are black or people of color. That's around 3%. So why does all this matter? It matters because of how issues of belonging, ownership, and race factor into hockey. While racism is played out in different ways in pretty much every sport, the ways it plays out in hockey are sometimes a bit more in-your-face. In my opinion, this is partly having to do with the fact that hockey is so white, and therefore many of us white folks feel like we have more of a claim to the game than other races. I'll give you two quick examples of how racism, specifically anti-black racism, has played out in hockey in recent years. So it's the 2014 NHL playoffs, and the Montreal Canadiens are playing their arch rivals, the Boston Bruins, in the second round. In game one of the series, the match goes into double overtime, and P.K. Subban, at the time playing with Montreal, and arguably one of hockey's biggest black superstars, scores the game-winning goal with his iconic slap shot from the point. I don't know if you can tell listening to this, but I'm a big P.K. Subban fan. Here's what that sounded like from a report on CBC TV. Montreal and Boston, double overtime. Subban shoots, he scores! Montreal's P.K. Subban wins the game. Meanwhile, on Twitter, several racist tweets are posted. Unbelievably, in 2014, racism comes with a hashtag, and the N-word rears its head and gains momentum. By morning, fresh on the heels of NBA owner Donald Sterling's stunningly racist tirade, the Subban story blows up this way. It's reported that 17,000 racist tweets were posted by Boston fans against Subban. So yeah, racist Boston fans, pissed off by the Bruins' loss and Subban's goal, unleashed a flurry of nasty racist tweets, so much so that the N-word was trending on Twitter. 
And in another incident in 2018, Devontae Smith-Pelly, a black player at the Washington Capitals, was in Chicago to face the Blackhawks. After taking a penalty midway through the game, Smith-Pelly started to receive racist jeers from some Chicago fans sitting near the penalty box. They were chanting, basketball, basketball at him, a clearly racially motivated taunt. It gets back to my earlier point that many white people feel that they have ownership over hockey and that black players simply don't belong in the sport. That's the Capitals' Devontae Smith-Pelly. He was in the penalty box midway through the third period when those racist chants started pouring in from a group of Chicago Blackhawks fans. Smith-Pelly was visibly upset, grabbing his stick at one point, and the four fans were kicked out of the United Center by ushers. Now the Hawks saying they are committed to providing an inclusive environment and what happened last night won't be tolerated. There are fewer than 30 African-American players on NHL roster, Smith-Pelly said. He has been the target of racial taunts in the past, but he wasn't willing to ignore this one. Well, the truth is that black athletes have been a part of hockey pretty much since its beginnings, and this is a history that's shamefully overlooked. So we have two amazing guests for you on the program today. The first is Damon Kwame Mason. Mason is a former sports journalist and filmmaker who directed the groundbreaking documentary film Soul on Ice about black athletes and hockey. Then, later in the program, we're going to hear from one of my favorite voices in the world of sports, Shireen Ahmed. Shireen is a sports writer and also one of the co-hosts of the bomb feminism and sports podcast, Burn It All Down. Go listen and subscribe to that show if you haven't yet. While Shireen mostly writes and speaks about Muslim women in soccer, she's a massive hockey fan and has penned some pretty great pieces about race and hockey. So we'll hear from her in just a little bit. But first up, I asked Damon Kwame Mason to tell me the history of the Colored Hockey League, a league created by and for black players in Nova Scotia around the turn of the 20th century, and some of the innovations of this league. I was not only surprised to learn about its existence, but also about how this small league would forever change the game of hockey. Let's get into it. So, um, if you know, if you know your history, and, and you know that, you know, um, the, you know, America, the slavery was just, you know, out of hand, if we could say that, um, and you know, there was the Underground Railroad that led into the East Coast of Canada, and um, you know, a lot of those freed slaves went to the Maritimes area, and um, you know, trying to make a life for themselves. You know, um, you kind of adapt to what your area is doing. And, um, you know, one of the things was hockey. And, you know, the, the Baptist church out there, they, they thought it would be a great way to get more young black men in their congregation by organizing a few hockey teams so that they can have little games. Um, so, you know, besides going to church, you have some activities and it's, it just kind of springboard from there where you started to get, you know, three teams, five teams, eight teams, 10 teams. And it just went on and on where it just became this, uh, pride of certain areas because, you know, a lot of these guys, they were, uh, baseball players in the summer. And then, you know, just to keep athletic, they played hockey in the winter. But, you know, none of the white teams would let them play. So they formed their own team, formed their own league. Um, 
you know, it, it was a huge draw. You know, a lot of the white hockey fans wanted to see all these black athletes playing the game because they've never seen that before. And um, it was a spectacle. You know, they played with two halves. Um, and in between the periods, in between the halves, as they called it back then, mm-hmm. there would be like some entertainment, music, guys would be doing tricks on the ice, um, you know, and just entertaining the crowd. And they go back and do the second half, which is very familiar to what you do at an all-star game. But these guys were doing it every time they had a major competition going on. Yeah, way uh, before the all-star game. Way <laughs> before all-star game. So it's like those, in those, when you speak about those innovations, you know, that's something that they were doing, you know, from the 1800s which was entertaining a crowd of people that were coming to watch a sports event, which you see now in the All-Star Games. But um, the biggest innovations that um, came out of the Colored Hockey League um, that I like to sp- uh, that people always speak about when you talk about the Colored Hockey League is, you know, the slap shot. Mm. So for um, most of, like I said, most of the players, they played baseball. And, you know, they took the idea of, you know, knocking a ball out the park and instead of swinging you know you know up direction they decided to do it downwards and so back then because you didn't have any name for it they called it a baseball shot and that's what we know now as a slap shot and then another innovation was that um you know most of the 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 rules for the white leagues was the goalies stood upright but in the black leagues, you know, the goalies were able to go down on the ice, flip-flop, and, you know, save the puck, and do all type of acrobatic styles of uh, of saving the puck, which we we see now as the butterfly style of goaltending. So they weren't, they weren't just entertaining, they were innovative. And, you know, the uh, National Hockey League adapted some of those um, techniques and and rules uh, to this day. Mm. And it's amazing because, like, today you can't even picture hockey without slap shots, mm-hmm. without goalies going, going down. down on the ice to, yeah. to stop a, a shot. And and it's it's so wild and fascinating to think that this was all born out of segregation, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, like that history. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think I, I think the, 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 the one thing about, you know, black athletes – in sports, they're, 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 they, uh, they've always tried to innovate and try to do things new or, you know, I, and I, 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 it's not necessarily just a black athlete thing. I think it's, um, you know, people of, you know, not necessarily poor, but people who just really don't have much and you give them something and they're going to turn it into something special, you know? It's just like what the, the white kids were doing with skateboarding. When they didn't have the money to go out surfing, you know, they wanted to surf. And they just said, well, I'm going to surf on the concrete. And they just started mimicking the tricks of what the surfers were doing. They did it on concrete. So, you know, it, it's, innovations are usually born out of this need or this need to get out or uh, this area of um, I don't have anything, you know, and... Um, I have to fend for myself. So, like, you know, these black leagues, they're just, you know, they're putting on these shows because they feel like, okay, well, we got to do something special for this crowd, this audience. We got to entertain them, you know, because that's how we're going to draw them in. And I think, you know, the white elite teams that were around that time, it was just for them, it was a given that people were going to come. So they just played their sport and that was that.
Hey, Aaron here from Changing on the Fly. Hope you're enjoying episode two of the podcast so far. I'm sick as a dog as I record this. My nose is runny. I've got a cold. I'm just going to try to power through it. But if you want to go back and hear episode one of this podcast, or if you want to make sure to never miss any future episodes, you can subscribe to Changing on the Fly wherever you get your podcasts. Like seriously, wherever. We're on Spotify, iTunes, Radio Public, Google Play, etc. Also, if you like this podcast, please support us. Our Patreon site is patreon.com slash changing on the fly. And for even as little as $1 a month, you can rest easy knowing that you're doing your part to keep the jerks off the ice and to encourage more in-depth critical analysis in hockey. Plus, we got some great perks. You can even help me to buy some lemons, some ginger, all those crucial things that I need to cure this cold, keep the heat running in my apartment, keep the lights on, pay our bills like web hosting and whatnot. So what are you waiting for? Support your independent podcasts. Go to patreon.com slash changing on the fly. We are so stoked to announce that we have also joined the Upford Network a group of podcasters that aim to build communities, share stories, and make lives better through comedy, culture, and honest conversations. Check them out to find your new favorite podcasts at upfordnetwork.com. And finally, make sure you connect with Changing on the Fly on all your social media. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is onchanging, facebook.com slash changingonthefly, and you can even catch us on Instagram. And now, back to our regular programming. The black men of the community could not play hockey with the white hockey teams in the area. They were just segregated. We've got some season ticket holders that are complaining about bringing you here. I had to injure everything. All the name calling, the N-word, I heard it all. He got death threats. You're playing the white man's game. You know that you can compete with the best, but you're the wrong color. For 12 years, we've been coming to hockey, and he's only the second one we've ever seen. Was there a discrimination issue, or was it simply the fact that he was too proud to go to the minor leagues? And you can find good arguments on both sides. There was racial slurs coming from every corner. The only way to get back at him is to win. Once again, that was Damon Kwame Mason, director of the excellent documentary Soul on Ice. You can rent that film for streaming on YouTube, and we'll post a link to it in the show notes. We just heard a clip from the trailer there, so definitely go check it out. So that's really fascinating how black hockey players have been an integral part of the sport since the beginning, and were even key in the innovation of the slap shot and the butterfly style of playing for goaltenders. It helps to demystify and debunk that idea of white ownership over hockey, a racist trope that we see in the sport even today. Over the last few decades, but especially in the last couple of years, we've seen black athletes and other athletes of color use their stature to challenge racism both on and off the playing field. Contemporary athletes like Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James are picking up the torch of their predecessors like Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith, and John Carlos 
but also using social media to rally their followers around them. As a result, we've seen their actions proliferate quickly across different sports and throughout the media. But still, the world of hockey has remained mostly impervious to this tide of anti-racist activism in sports. The 2017 NHL season started in a flurry of controversy and anticipation. The take-a-knee movement was widespread throughout the National Football League. Many top basketball stars were making powerful statements against Trump's racist policies. Yet everyone was wondering who, if anyone, was going to be the first person to, figuratively or otherwise, take a knee in hockey. Amidst all of this, you had Canadian hockey superstar Sidney Crosby and his Pittsburgh Penguins visit Trump at the White House to celebrate their Stanley Cup victory from the year before. Many fans implored him not to go, but rather to follow in the footsteps of other championship-winning teams in other sports, like the New England Patriots or the Golden State Warriors, and refuse the visit. But they went, and Trump got his photo op with Sid the Kid and the rest of the Penguins. We have to start with somebody that I've been watching for a long time because I saw him when he was just about as young as you can get going into the NHL. Sidney Crosby. Where's Sidney? Man, can you play? Sidney, do you know how to win or what? Look at him, he's shy. You know how to win. My next guest penned a biting critique of this visit for Vice Sports and is someone who's a leading voice on race and gender in sports. Shereen Ahmed is a sports writer based in Toronto and one of the hosts of the wonderful feminist sports podcast, Burn It All Down. I started by asking her what was so problematic about the Penguins' visit to the White House, and then our conversation moved deeper into anti-racism and hockey. Here's Shereen Ahmed. I'm from the same place Sidney Crosby's from. I'm from Nova Scotia. He hails from Dartmouth, from Coal Harbor, where historically there have been racialized, there has been racialized violence in his lifetime. When I was in high school, and I'm not that much older than Sid the Kid, but even after I graduated in 95, there were riots up until 2001, 2002 in his lifetime that he would have been, he would have been aware of. So for him to say, as Canadians, anti-blackness doesn't affect us is ludicrous. This wasn't about patriotism. This wasn't about anything. If only he listened, right? JT Brown was raising his fist. There's people, you know, we want more from PK. We want way more. But under the circumstances, fine. I'm not a black person. I'm not going to judge how he navigates through his that issue. However, for Sidney Crosby to take a step back and say this doesn't affect us is essentially erasing Canada of its own absolutely violent racist past. I mean, this entire country was founded on the genocide of Indigenous peoples. I mean, and when people think, well, Canada was used as a, as a haven for the black, for the Underground Railroad, for black people. Yes, but it's not as if systematic racism didn't, it doesn't exist here. Absolutely it does. And I mean, I think in, 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 in like ideas of that xenophobia doesn't exist, that I mean, we're in Quebec, like obviously it's not too far past that we're talking about Islamophobia in such an inherent level, right? And, and, and so Sidney Crosby saying, well, we're not actually affected because we're Canadian was a cop out. I think it was incredible amounts of cowardice on his part. And as a leader, as the the one that the team looked up to, it wouldn't have been that difficult. And, you know, even if he wanted to go, because some people argue, well, he, he sh- you know, it's disrespectful. You know, it's disrespectful being a racist asshole. That's actually really disrespectful for him to go and say to Trump, 
I have huge problems with the way you handle. Because what what about all those little kids that are in Timbits programs, that are black kids, that are brown kids, that are indigenous kids? What are they seeing when they see him stand there? They're seeing someone who's a racism apologist. That's what they're seeing. That's what I saw. And kids are much smarter than I am. So, of course, I have no opinion on that. <laughs> and you brought up JT Brown as well, which is great. That kind of segues into my next question um, because he was, as far as I know, in the NHL, the only player yeah. that um, engaged with the taking a knee mm-hmm. movement. And it's very significant that mm-hmm. he's a black player, that he's African-American, too. He's mm-hmm. from Minnesota. And this was the lightning bench during the national anthem moments ago. Lightning forward JT Brown with a fist in the air. As, of course, everybody knows uh, this has been an ongoing, if you want to call it, controversy about the presentation of national anthems at various sporting events. Yeah, your reflections on on seeing that and and what it meant for hockey more broadly. I also think that his gesture was really powerful because it was reminiscent of the 1968 Olympics and it was there was no there's no discussion what his gesture was. Also, it's kind of awkward to kneel in hockey equipment. So for me, it made sense physically in that way for him to be able to do that. But it was the first of his kind. And this is why, I mean, I have discussions all the time with other people of color about whether what our expectations of. And my opinion on this hasn't changed. I don't expect anything of people of color because they're always the ones on the front lines having to do the work. I expect a hell of a lot more from allies. But the fact that he did it gets my unconditional support. And I'm thrilled to see it. It is an incredibly, I I believe, other than curling, I think that hockey in Major League is the whitest sport, undeniably. What I think it was only uh, 30 out of 700 players were black, something like that. 780 in the NHL and 30 of them maybe are are, are, are Mm non-white. And I think that I have to check that set. I don't know if it's... 30 or black or non-white, because like Nazem Kadri is considered. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have full expectations of Nazem Kadri to be able to say, well, listen, he absolutely comes from a marginalized community. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely. Like, where is he? Why is he not, you know, and people will just say I'm targeting him because he's a leaf, but maple leaf. But the, I think the idea is this is where, but what about, I, from what I know, there's no openly gay player in the NHL at the moment. So this interesting question that, that we've been kind of bringing up, and, and it was brought up, uh, you know, when you were in Montreal last year with Dave Zirin, um, and especially seeing the wave of protests happening in, mm-hmm. like, the NFL, the NBA, the WNBA, American sports in general, is, like, you know, why are we not seeing that to the same extent in hockey? Amazing that people like JT Brown did what he did, but it mm-hmm. was, like, such a drop in the bucket. And... There's maybe the obvious answer that it's a very, very white sport, but but I almost feel like that, in a way, kind of maybe scratches the surface. Maybe it tells a bigger part of the story. Um, but yeah, like is that is that just scratching the surface, or are are there other reasons of like that you feel like why why we're just not seeing that engagement with anti-racist politics in the sport? I think the. Hockey culture is a very fascinating one, and you obviously would know more about it. I mean, you study it. But the idea of what it is is shrouded in the sense of purity, in the sense of we're not going to politicize. Like Gary Bettman tries hard to stay out of things, which isn't possible in this day and age, which isn't 
it becomes irrelevant in that way. But this idea that will keep hockey untouched, but then you still have Don Cherry spewing his nonsense and calling us what pink right left wing pinkos. What did what are we called or something? And I think this this whole idea of the hockey culture it needs to move. It needs to change. I mean, we're not seeing the populations represented as we would like to, but even the ones that are there are not feeling possibly safe. I'm not going to assume, but not feeling like it's a space enough to talk about these things. Like, yeah, Cassie Campbell comes on Hockey Night in Canada every once in a while. That's not good enough. I mean, yeah, I mean, I had an interview with um, Kalia Johnson, who plays for for Boston in the NWHL, and I asked her this question, or this is for the podcast, like, have you thought about, you know, anthem protest? Have you thought about this? And she says, it's actually not come up. Because on the other hand, that's why we look at the WNBA and we're like astounded at how brave they are. Because not only are they women of color, like they're, sorry, women, they're people of color as well. So it's that double marginalization. So to ask her that, it occurred to me later, like, that's a really loaded question. Like, we're putting so much emphasis on what the players do to make themselves heard. What is the surrounding people doing for them? What's everyone else doing? Like, this isn't an issue that only affects people of color. It affects the entire society. And so in my opinion, we shouldn't always be demanding or expecting the ones that are affected and marginalized the most to be doing the work. Once again, that was Shireen Ahmed, creator of the blog Tales of a Hijabi Footballer and co-host of the Sports and Feminism podcast, Burn It All Down. We'll put links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. As we round out this episode of Changing on the Fly, we'll leave you with some closing thoughts from Damon Kwame Mason, director of the documentary Soul on Ice. I've been thinking a lot about the importance of documenting the histories of people of color in sports, and specifically in hockey, and I had a chance to talk with Damon about this. He feels that by acknowledging the past and present of black athletes in hockey, people like Willie O'Ree, the first black player in the NHL, it'll help make hockey a more racially diverse sport in the future. Here's Damon Kwame Mason again. If you talk to majority of black athletes playing hockey today about the Colored Hockey League of Nova Scotia, about Herb Carnegie, about Willie O'Ree, about Tony McKegney, Mike Marzin, Bill Riley, they're going to be clueless to half of those stories. And that's a shame. But if you ask Sidney Crosby, you ask Ovechkin about the history of white athletes in hockey, they'll break it down to you. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, there's an even playing field as far as our history goes so that, you know, no one can tell that kid, well, no, blacks, you know, come on now. It's P.K. Subban. That's where you guys really start popping off. They could turn back to them and say, oh, please, listen, we started, the, we invented the slap shot. That's a sense of pride right there. And that's not about trying to say who's first or anything like that and trying to take away anything from the game of hockey. We're, I'm just trying to add to the game of hockey. I'm just trying to say that, you know, the game of hockey was special for all of us. And, 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 you know, there is no need to exclude one group just because you fear that it's going to get taken over. Basketball is not taken over by all blacks. Football is not taken over by blacks. You know, it's, it's, those, those sports are much more diverse than hockey, you know? And, uh, yeah, I just feel like 
time is going to be much kinder to the game of hockey. But where we are right now, we just have to be kinder to its history. So that just about does it for this episode of Changing on the Fly, looking at race and racism in hockey. Our guests on the show today were Damon Kwame Mason and Shireen Ahmed. Make sure you check out their work because it's really incredible and important. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to Changing on the Fly so you can hear all the back episodes and all future upcoming episodes. Music in this episode is by The Kendalls, DJ Spooky, 60s, and Ilego. For more info on the podcast, find us online at changingonthefly.podcast.wordpress.com or email us at changingonthefly.podcast at gmail.com. My name's Aaron Lakoff. Thanks for listening. Once again, I hope you enjoyed episode two of Changing on the Fly. I'm going to go back to nursing this cold. Just before we leave you, I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon who make this show happen. Aiden, Ann, Nick A, Jeremy, Sam, Nick T, Grill, and Dasha. Want your name on that list? Hit us up with a few coins at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Again, help me buy some lemons, some ginger, some coffee, some tea to get over this nasty cold. Once again, we're thrilled to be part of the Upford Podcast Network. Check them out to find your new favorite show at upfordnetwork.com. We'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Mel. And I'm Sass. And we're the host of The Last Stretch, a sports podcast. It's a podcast where we're going to talk about, well, sports. Specifically, what we do look at is what makes an athlete be the best that they can be. So not only do we talk to some athletes, but we talk to the people behind the athletes, from trainers to sports psychologists, you name it, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about other issues revolving sports as well, hot button issues like concussions, maybe doping. Give us a listen. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julian McKenzie, co-host of the Scrum Podcast, a sports show I'm doing with my podcasting partner in crime, Tristan Damore, on the UpFord Network. Every week, we analyze something different from the Canadian sports media landscape. Lack of diversity, getting a job in the field, coverage of different sports, and answering some of the harder questions. Through a combination of back-and-forth discussion and high-profile guest interviews, we're aiming to figure out exactly what's up in the world of sports. Find us wherever podcasts are sold. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, Message in a Bottle, Morse Code, Telegram, Singing Telegram, Target, Walgreens, Bird's Nest, Dad's Shed, uh, and a crowded convention center bathroom. The biggest innovations that came out of the Colored Hockey League that people always speak about when you talk about the Colored Hockey League is, you know, the slap shot. Mm. Like I said, most of the players, they played baseball. And, you know, they took the idea of knocking a ball out the park and instead of swinging you know up direction they decided to do it downwards and so back then because you didn't have any name for it they called it the baseball shot and that's what we know now as a slap shot for Sidney Crosby to take a step back and say this doesn't affect us is essentially erasing Canada of its own absolutely violent racist past. I mean, this entire country was founded on the genocide of Indigenous peoples. I mean, and when people think, well, Canada was used as a, as a haven for the Black, you know, for the Underground Railroad, for Black people, yes, but it's not as if systematic racism didn't, it doesn't exist here. Absolutely it does. 
And I mean, I think in, 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 in like ideas of that xenophobia doesn't exist, that I mean, we're in Quebec, like, obviously, it's not too far past that we were talking about Islamophobia in such an inherent level. 